Denebacast is back, and today we are joined by a very special guest, our English teacher or soon-to-be English teacher. You may know him from Tertulia, Film Studies, NMC, GeoGuessr Club, the Boston Marathon, and near winner of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? But as he would say, such is life. Well, without further ado, we are pleased to welcome on a big fan of the show, Mr. David Weintraub. Well, let's get into the episode. I'm Brendan Weissel. I'm Aiden Geeser. And I'm Justin Levy. And this is Denebacast. The Revival. So to set the scene a little bit, we're in a very different location than we've ever been. We're currently located in the teacher's lounge. How are we feeling? Feeling good. It's, uh, it's nice to be in Mr. Weintraub's home, as he calls it, the teacher's lounge. Uh, how you doing, Mr. Weintraub? I'm doing good. It is uh, Thursday. It's MCAS day, uh, so it's a little quiet in the building. Um, senior grades are due tomorrow, so I've got that kind of breathing down my neck. But it's going to get done like it always does. Um, I mean, that question is very complicated these days, um, but you know, I'm happy to be here with you guys. We appreciate you taking the time to see, uh, you know, we are, we are much more important than seniors as they're, uh, as they're on their way out. So we are the next seniors. We talked about this on the last, last episode. We're now the oldest in the school. How many, how many grades have you, you gone through? How many grades have you seen graduate? So this is the end of my 16th year here at Newton South. And so does that equate to 16 grades? I don't, I don't actually know. It would probably be that times four because there's four grades at any given time. I'm obviously not a math teacher. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll just say I've been here for 16 years. I, I did a weird calculation a few days ago and realized I taught over 1,200 students. Um, and I guess... Not the answer you're looking for, but I have taught all four grades over the years. But, um, you know, I'll generally teach these days juniors and seniors. Um, so two grades a year, 16 years, you can do the math. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> What's your path been like leading up to working at South? So I actually got here when I was 24 years old. I was kind of a baby. Um, but my path to education was pretty non-traditional. I... Uh, didn't really, I, I never really went to ed school, at least, I mean, I have since, but not before entering the classroom. Um, I went from undergrad to grad studies, and then I was doing grad studies in London and then came back uh, to Boston. And kind of on a whim, I had taken the like teacher certification test. And when I got back, I needed money and I'd always wanted to be a teacher in some capacity. And I found out that there was an opening at Newton South. So I came in, I, I guess I presented fairly well at the interview. And then like two weeks later, I was in front of a classroom for the first time. I didn't do any student teaching. I'd never, like I said, I'd never gone through the ed school pipeline. So this is all very new to me. And, um, and, and I should have been way more intimidated than I was, but I was a 24 year old with a lot, like a head full of steam and, uh, a lot of books in my mind and a lot of movies in my mind. And uh, I kind of used that energy to carry me through. Um, my first year was, was really great. I really avoided what a lot of first year teachers describe as a, like the hellish year, the first year. Um, that was my second year. <laughs> my first year was great. My second, I was like, I can do anything. My second year was really humbling um, because I just had a, a group of kids who weren't, they, they weren't bought in and I had to really flex and learn the skills of the craft in order to do my job. 
Um, so my second year was like I would the way I would describe most people's first years. And then there's been ups and downs along the way. And uh, the good thing about this job is that um, you learn everything anew starting in September because you have new kids, new adventures, new experiences. And I think that that's the thing that keeps teachers coming back. Um, it's not the paycheck. It's not the facilities. Um, it is really just that sense of newness that comes around every September, um, a relearning, a, a rejuvenation. And uh, I can definitely attest to that. As I've talked to a lot of teachers this year, they said that this year felt like, uh, you know, their first year. Would, that, would you think that holds true for this year? I know it's been such a, a wild year. Does it even feel like at, you're teaching at this point? Like, what, what has this year been like? Uh, again, a complicated question with a complicated set of answers. This year has been, for me, and I'm only going to speak personally because I've talked to a lot of my colleagues about it, and everybody's got a different version of the same story. So I'll only talk about myself. But I will say that without hesitation, this has been the hardest year of teaching that I've ever had. Um, and there have been a lot of bright spots, for sure. Like, you guys, teaching you guys has been clearly a bright spot. And watching you guys work and collaborate, even in remote settings, has been amazing. Um, but I will say that the, there's been a few things that have made this year particularly difficult. The first thing is the fact that we had so many changes within the school year. So we started remote and then we went to a kind of part-time high flex and then we went to a full-time high flex. And now we're even beyond that. So for me, I never really felt settled. Um, there was one period sort of towards the end of November, middle of December, where I, I was starting to feel comfortable in remote learning. And I felt like we had routines going. You know, there were, there were ways that, the week felt coherent. And then when HyFlex started, it kind of threw all of those routines out the window. And usually I'm, I'm actually pretty good about welcoming challenges. If somebody says like, hey, you want to teach a new class? I'm, I'm almost always like, yeah, give it to me. Like, I'm, I'm down for that. Um, and this year, I, I just felt the opposite. I was just not, I was not ready for that challenge. I was not welcoming of that challenge. I was a little resentful of that challenge. Um, because when you're teaching on Zoom and live at the same time, almost all of the, the moves that I would use as a teacher to generate learning were rendered null and void. And so what it required was a, an almost complete reimagining of what the craft of teaching required. And that task was insurmountable. I think that I got maybe two-thirds of the way um, to the trailhead. Didn't even start climbing the mountain. And um, it was pretty dispiriting along the way. And, you know, I don't want you to get the sense that it was all negative. Like I said, um, getting to know you guys, the NMC work that, that you guys in your class have done, the projects have been amazing. Um, but I will say that the, the act of teaching was much harder this year than it's ever been. And it was harder to generate the kind of pleasure that usually I'm able to generate and that students are able to generate. So it was a challenge on, on all sides. Um, so that's just like in terms of my experience within my classroom. There are other, I think, great things that happened this year, but I'll wait until you're, you know, I'll wait to go into that until later questions. Yeah. Um... 
going into the classroom with your class, you were the first class that I went into the building for. I mean, to students who may, you know, give your teachers a hard time for a high flex because it might be difficult or they might be muted at times, you gotta understand. <laughs> teaching high flex is incredibly difficult and going along to what you were saying, with the amount of changes that this year alone has presented, it's, I'm sure, been very difficult to find the consistency. And I think despite all that, you've done a remarkable job this year, and I really, really enjoy your class. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, that feeling is totally mutual. I, I feel like um, uh, despite the challenges of HyFlex, I always knew that you guys were, were locked in, and that was really hard to tell for everybody Um Again, I'm only speaking for myself here, although this is to some extent similar to what I've heard from other teachers. Um, the the lack of face-to-face -face contact, just it, it it it's a little thing, you know, having your camera on, camera off, but it it actually it it sends such a big message. And um, there are some kids that I, you know I, I still have never seen their faces, and that's really tough. But the, the reason why I say that is to kind of circle back to what you were saying, which is that um, for you guys in particular, I, I, I always knew that you guys were locked in. Um, there was buy-in, there was energy, there was enthusiasm. And when I did, you know, get into my car at the end of the day and, and kind of uh, reminisce gladly on the days, it, it, was, those, it was those experiences. So th they happened. And... Um, the core of teaching is relationships, and that was made much more difficult to establish and to develop this year. But they happened, and um, and and that brought joy. That is definitely one thing that I, you know, had never realized going into this year. And I guess I I really learned it last year. Um, you know, Justin and I and a couple other friends from NMC would always go talk to Mr. Rinaldi during you know some of the flex blocks, and now like getting these more like personal opportunities, and even with. You know, it really started with um, you and Mr. Rinaldi, but I've definitely, you know, seen it, seen myself do it more with other teachers. And it just shows, you know, how much, you know, teachers are there to educate you, but they're also there to, to Mr. Rinaldi wouldn't say this, but they're there to be your friend. Um, and that's something that I've really, you know, taken, I, I didn't really understand until this year. And it's really just, it's a great thing when you figure it out. And I hope that, you know, other students can figure it out as well. Yeah, it's, it's so strange because I, um, I disagree with you. I don't think that teachers are there to be your friend, but I do think that teachers are there to be um, supportive people always. You know, the worst thing a teacher can do is shut a student down. The worst thing a teacher can do is close a door. Um, and so in order for that to happen, there needs to be a relationship. And that, I think, is, to go back to what I was saying earlier, that is actually something that despite the challenges of this year, that was that relationships did develop relationships did um they relationships were fostered and i will actually say that going back to when i was what i was saying earlier about the good things i think straight out of the gate all of the teachers at least in the english department knew that our main job was to double triple time the relationship building um whereas in previous years curriculum tended to matter more, um, sequencing mattered more, um, assessment mattered more. Do you guys know what I mean? Like, you know, choosing a final exam, choosing what books you're going to teach, choosing your curricular materials. Those would be the primary conversations that we would have in the run-up to the school year. And this year, it was almost all about relationship building. It was like 
this year more than any other year, our job is to foster those relationships. And while, you know, I might be slightly uncomfortable saying like, yes, my students are my friends, but this year I did not mind it because we are in this unprecedented, I know that's a cliche, but we're in this unprecedented new paradigm for both education and for living. And we have to, I feel like it was just so important to just foreground those relationships at the start of the year and do everything we could to kind of tear down certain barriers because other barriers were being presented to us. You know, Zoom is a barrier. Um, I've said this many times before, I think probably to you guys, but eye contact is impossible on Zoom. And that is a barrier. So with that barrier, we really needed to be creative and kind of work around those barriers to establish those relationships. And um, part of the work that we did in the opening unit with um, telling those stories, um, that was what that was all about. It was about um, trying to build relationships in an authentic human way uh, in this year when we were presented with so many barriers to building those relationships. Yeah, I just want to commend you. I don't even have you as a teacher this year. And through Tertulia and through even like little things like GeoGuessr Club. It's really been fun getting to know you. And I think you should just thank Brendan for that. GeoGuessr Club was all, was all Brendan. And I, I, I do have to say, we could turn this whole podcast into a GeoGuessr podcast because um, ever since you presented that to me, uh, I, I've been absolutely obsessed. My friends are like ready to break up with me because I'm always texting them saying, can we do a GeoGuessr? Can we do a GeoGuessr? Um, so thanks for that, Brendan. I, I now have fewer friends because they're all avoiding my texts. You got, here's the thing. You know, you got to let your friends win some. I know you're really good. The first thing Mr. Wanchov said to me when I, he was like, oh, I'm always looking at maps. And I was, look, I was like, there's no way that you're always just looking it's at true. maps. It's true. I am always looking at maps. And then I played a couple rounds with them, and I was like, this guy needs to stop looking at some maps. <laughs> um, it, so I... I do think that Google Maps is like the most fascinating thing to just sink into. I think it's better than sinking into Instagram or TikTok or whatever social media, you know, holes you can find yourself falling down. Um, and it has come in handy in, in the form of GeoGuessr, which is why it is like the perfect game for me. And I, I feel embarrassed to know that this game has been around for like four or five years. That's four or five years of G prime GeoGuessr time that I've missed and I will never get back. I'm really upset about it, actually. And um, for those of you who are listening outside or out, outside of this room to this podcast, um, if you haven't played GeoGuessr, what are you waiting for? Seriously, I I'm not being paid by by GeoGuessr. By the way. <laughs> not sponsored. Not sponsored. Not sponsored. Yeah, but um, yeah, I remember one class at the end of NMC. We would we our class played GeoGuessr, and I, it was my first time playing. I was like, this game can't be that fun, and I played, and I got I was close for the first, and it was in East Boston. And I was so happy. And I was thinking, wow, maybe I should, you know, keep playing this game. And then I look at the leaderboard. Mr. Weintraub at the top of the leaderboard consistently. I don't think he was far off for any of the rounds. I, it was crazy. Was that the Boston one? Yeah. Yeah, the Boston one I'm really good at. <laughs> I'm really good at the Boston one. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at the uh, USA one, pretty good at the world, but I'm pretty much unstoppable on the Boston one. Um, but that's just because I'm, you know, 40 years old and I've, and I've lived in Boston for most of my life. So that's just accumulated knowledge. That's not necessarily obsessive 1 a.m. Google Maps, you know, <laughs> obsession. It's good to use some of those real life skills instead of just the, you know, the math skills. That's why Boston is 
really good for you and really bad for someone like indeed. me or Dante who indeed really we tend to struggle on the Boston map. Yeah, yeah. You know? He looks at everything and says it looks, he like, looks Brooklyn. like Brooklyn. Yeah, it's not Brooklyn. He'll like the shout out. He's been waiting for one. That's right. <laughs> Have you always? Did you grow up in Boston? Or? I grew up in Brooklyn. You can tell that to Dante. <laughs> he's he's a listener. He'll, he'll hear this. <laughs> I grew up right outside of Coolidge Corner, and uh, so I've made the um, the forbidden trek from Brookline to Newton. Although you know Brookline and Newton North are the real rivals. I don't really think Newton South has a rival. Do, I mean Lincoln Sudbury, right? No, we, we do them and everything yeah. was such trash. Yeah, I don't think Newton South has any rivals, but Brookline is heavy rivals with Newton North. Um, I remember going to Brookline High and uh, going to North basketball games. These games were crazy. They got violent. I mean, multiple riots happened at Brookline Newton North basketball games. It was crazy. Um, it got to the point where my parents were like, "You cannot go to the basketball game. It's too dangerous." Uh, so there were, those were heated times, and uh, even though that forbidden trek from Brookline to Newton doesn't necessarily turn south, um, I do have some explaining to do when I encounter <laughs> long-lost acquaintances who I went to high school with. One thing you just mentioned that uh, is about the sports is that Newton South like, really does not have a rival, and on top of that, we really don't have as much spirit. Not that I would like us to have, you know, fights in the parking lot. Although I've been to some volleyball games uh, with my brother where those have happened because um, that's where we were really good at for a while. But it is, it is frustrating as someone who generally loves sports, really loves South sports, has really kind of made my, a name for myself, I think, in that way this year. It is really frustrating at South that we have no spirit. Has there ever really been spirit at South? I know you haven't been here, you've been here for 16 years, which is a good amount yeah. of time to see it ebb and flow. That is a really good question. I will say, so... <laughs> I apologize. I'm going to go on a little bit of a, of a tangent. Um, there, for all institutions, there's the reality and then there's the stereotype or there's the reality and then there's the perception. And I think that about a lot of things, the reality and the perception around Newton South is different. Um, so, for example, um, there's a, a, a perception of the Newton community as um, being quite solicitous about um, educational decisions. And what I'm really talking about is parents. Like there's a, a perception that there are a lot of pushy parents that are um, trying to advocate for their kids and, and that they, in so doing, they kind of set themselves up in opposition of the school and definitely the teachers. I haven't really experienced that. I've, I've experienced almost nothing but amazing parents, supportive parents, supportive families. And so that's one area where I think that the, the, the perception and the reality doesn't align. Um, and I think spirit is actually another one of those areas where the perception and the reality um, doesn't fully align. Now, I'm not saying that South has excessive spirit. We don't have a thousand people at our football games or glee clubs and, you know, uh, uh, all school band concerts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I do think that um, what I notice is we have certain pockets of spirit that are really important and that draw people to the school are these all are they all all school encompassing experiences no not necessarily but i can tell you that if you're in the music department if you are in jazz bands like you have bought in and you love that jazz band and you love to perform with your jazz band colleagues and 
Um, you love your teachers. If you're on the sports teams, you are bound to those sports teams. There's, there's, uh, there's connection there. And so I, I, I don't think that, you know, we're not going to rival like a Texas school with, like I said, a thousand people in the stands for the football games. But I think people are attached to the school community more than maybe people give credit to. Uh, the old principal used to say that kids, they go to South, but they don't love South. And maybe there's some truth to that. But I, I would say that almost every student loves a teacher, has friends that they love, loves an activity, um, is attached to this building, to this space, to this community in some way. And, um, you know, just having done uh, Tertulia, I, I feel like that really comes out on that Tertulia day, that you get a gr group of people together. Um, they're all cheering for, for each other. No matter what the person is doing on stage, everybody's cheering, um, supporting one another. There's energy in the building. And I mean, how much more spirited can you get? Like what better example can you get? Um, so I, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's probably more of a perception that we lack spirit than a reality. Um, if you asked most students, do you feel attached to somebody in the school or an organization in the school? I'd say most kids would say, yeah. Do you guys agree? I think, like you said, there are, without a doubt, pockets of which some people can find their own. And the school is so, it's big enough in the sense that everyone can find a community or a group or a club or team that they can feel at home with and feel like they're, there's a community there, definitely. Right. Um, someone else was I mean, again, it is important to, to mention that, like, in the traditional sense of spirit, I think South, it, it, South may actually lack that version of spirit. But what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, if you redefine spirit as attachment, I think most of the kids feel that spirited attachment to the school in some, in some way, shape, or form. For sure. Yeah. We definitely compensate for it. Remembered. Like you said, Tertulia this year, Tertulia my freshman year was huge, it was great, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was excited, to say the least, for Tertulia this year because of the group, uh, shout out, I was lucky enough to be chosen to help out, uh, I took some photos and uh, managed the Instagram, but shout out Dina Katz and Maya Hernandez, Tertulia this year was big, Aiden, you were an MC. I was blown away just by how many people showed up, the enthusiasm of the crowd, how well it was managed, just from start to finish, it was, it was a really fun and uh, exciting experience to be a part of and, and witness. So I think Tertulli is a great example of how the South Spirit can come out uh, in ways that you might not expect uh, at eye level. Yeah, yeah. I, and I want to just double emphasize that Dina and Maya were just so incredible as leaders of that, of that crew. And if people out there listening do not know how Tertulia came to be, well, I've got two words for you, Dina and Maya. I mean, they took the reins and they made it special. They organized it. They're, you know, they led amazing meetings. They attracted amazing acts. They, uh, they essentially set everything up so we didn't really have to worry about anything on the day. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't have like, found, I, we couldn't have found two better people to lead that um, that enterprise to, to lead that, that group. It, and it's important to realize the challenge that they were facing. I mean, they were facing, um, 
possible COVID restrictions. They were facing possible weather restrictions. Like imagine if the if the weather on Saturday had been the, the weather on Tuesday. It would you know it would have really dampened our our spirit uh, in in multiple ways. But they stepped up. They said it perfectly. Um, you know, practically the only thing that went wrong was that uh, a bunch of hats went missing, <laughs> which I blame myself. That's not for. what I thought you were gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> no. What, would, what did you think I was gonna say? I thought you were gonna say that the the piano shut off a couple times. Oh before. yes, indeed. I really I felt bad for the for the uh, the student who was performing on that piano, but I will say. Um, he did an amazing job. He, he created, he composed that piece. And when he was faced with adversity, he didn't give up. He kept, he kept going. I mean, that's, that's a great lesson for all of us. Um, and then when he got his hands on the, the actually working keyboard, he blew us all away. Um, do you guys, his name was Harrell, right? Yeah. yeah. He was incredible. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was an amazing feat of organization on Maya and Dina's part, and enthusiasm on the audience's part, and cooperation on the sky's part. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I, that, that event went off exactly as I was hoping it would. And again, Dina and Maya, huge shout out to them for their leadership and their vision and their organization. Yeah, I just want to reiterate the shout out to Maya. When she asked me to be an MC, I was so ambivalent. I've like never had to speak in front of a crowd in that sense. And she was so enthusiastic, totally gave me confidence. And I don't, I don't really know how it went, but she, she definitely made me feel good about it. Just from my perspective, I was the only person not, you know, directly involved in Tertulia. Although I, I did really want to be an MC, but I will do that next year. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Hopefully, if Justin's in charge, which I've heard, uh, we were gonna we were gonna ask you to be an MC, but we were like, Brendan does so many things. Like, does he? He doesn't need another thing. So that was you were in the conversation. Just so you know, I appreciate that. Yeah. But Tertulia, I I was like I was I was pretty excited for it. I wasn't I didn't really know how it was gonna be um, outside. And I think one thing that was interesting is only half the school had ever had a Tertulia which I thought was super special because so many people a couple days before were like, oh, what's Tertulia? What is this? And even when they were there, like, oh, we have a talent. Like, what is going on here? And then they got there and they, at least it looked like a lot of the sophomore and freshman faces, they really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, I worry about a lot of things a lot and uh, I, I spend a lot of time when it's dark outside and I'm, and I'm lying down worrying about things. Uh, you may not know that about me. And uh, one of the things that kept me up at night was something that I heard from uh, a number of people that we were working with um, on the administrative level, which is if we, if we don't continue that tradition, it's very possible that it dies. And speaking personally, this is like the first year that I have been in charge of the Tertulia Club. And I was like, I don't want to be the one who, <laughs> under whom Tertulia dies. Uh, and they were saying that for the simple reason that you just articulated, Brendan, which is that sophomores and juniors simply have not experienced a, tr a traditional tertulia. And so at the very least, what I think we succeeded in doing is giving tertulia a kind of new life to the brand, so to speak. Um, and so now freshmen and sophomores know to look forward to it next year, maybe some enterprising freshmen and sophomores will decide to take a risk and, you know, 
take their guitar out, uh, sing a song in front of everybody, uh, and, 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 and that's the way that the tradition continues. So I, I'm not worried about that now. I've got new worries that'll keep me up at night, but not that one right now. Well, I'm glad that one is uh, off your plate. Do you want to do the geese report quickly? We kind of just talked about it, but I feel like this is my favorite segment on the whole show. So. All right, sure. So while we're on the theme of the Tertulia, shout out for the Giza Report this week. It's a special shout out to pretty much everyone who participated in Tertulia, everyone who hosted it, everyone who like got it together. Special shout out to Mr. Weintraub. Um, do we want to talk about our favorite performances? Sure, for sure. All right. You want to start in or you want me to kick it off? Uh, I'll go first. Right. Um, so in my opinion... This was the block that I emceed, but Victoria Rivard really blew me away. That was, that was crazy. What did you guys think about that performance? For sure. She is very talented, and that's an understatement. Her vocals, incredible, and very, very talented. I'm not going to participate in the ranking of performers because, from my perspective, they were all great equally. But I will say about Victoria's performance that um, she played the lead in Mamma Mia. It wasn't last year, right? It was the year before. What was it last year? It may have been last year. No, it was two years ago. I'm sorry. Anyway, she played the lead in Mamma Mia when they performed Mamma Mia. And I, um, that was the first South musical that I brought my daughters to. Um, I think my youngest was four and my oldest was six or something like that. I was sort of in that, that, that realm. And we had been obsessed with Mamma Mia, the, the movie, for a while. And they were just so blown away by her and Darby was playing um, the mother, Donna, and, and, and Darby was in my class at that point, and I was just, I was so proud to be able to say, I know Donna. Um, I don't yet know Sophie. That's the character that, uh, that Victoria, uh, Victoria, Victoria, Victoria. She did it as a, the performance you're talking about, she was a freshman. She was a freshman, that's right. Like Aiden said at, at Tertulia, Broadway in five years, yeah. you know. So, so I knew I knew that she could sing, and I was really excited to hear her. And, uh, um, you know, my daughters still talk about that performance. I'm sorry to interrupt the geezer report. <laughs> no so problem. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, okay, I guess I'll go next. Um, now, I might be a little biased because one of them is a Denebicast vet alumni, but uh, shout out to Daniel Glickman and Owen Beaver. They started out with a nice... Uh, couple jokes lucid dreams mentioned some led zeppelin but their vocals i mean their performance as a whole was well crafted they got some crowd engagement daniel owen great job i got a pretty good picture i think um and once again like i said i might be biased but edgar wright one of my favorite directors of all time scott pilgrim one of my favorite films they played a song from that film i mean what's there not to love and they did it justice it was all around a great performance I have two uh, for the, for the Geese Report. First is New Tones. People ask me always, I have a really good friend, Ben Kalis, who's in the New Tones. He always asks me to come to performances. I haven't been able to make it to one, so seeing the New Tones perform live, um, it was awesome. Uh, and Ben had a little uh, solo on one of the first songs, which was super, super awesome to hear. And then my second one, unfortunately, I don't know their name, but it was the person who did the poem in First the E Block. Was that Gianna? She was super good. She was really Amazing. good. I, I think... I'm not sure how many people saw it because it was like the online first block, but that, that poem was really, really well done and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Going back to Daniel's performance, um, the second I saw him, I was just so envious of how he was able to captivate the crowd so well. Like, I was like, why, are you, why am I the MC and not you? <laughs> but I don't know. 
Um, Mr. Weintraub, sorry to go back, but while you were talking about um, GeoGuessr Club and you were talking about Google Maps, you said you preferred that to scrolling through TikTok and Instagram. And I know you're very into media, seeing that you're uh, one of the main guys in NMC. So what are your favorite forms of media, and like, how did NMC come to be? Um, it's a really great question. So uh, it's hard to answer, because media is such a broad category. Um, I will say that you know my first love are movies, and uh, all kinds of movies. Uh, documentaries, like what we're doing with NMC Juniors right now, um, that really stems from my love of documentary filmmaking. Um, but I would say that just I, I'm a complete cinephile, which means that I just love movies in, in every shape or form. So I love Hollywood movies, big blockbusters. I love European art movies, you know, Korean zombie movies, um, Bengali uh, dramas. Like, the world is such, is so full of incredible cinema. And I, I, it's like what I was saying earlier about why I love teaching, which is that you come in fresh every year and you learn new things every year. Same thing with movies. Um, so every year, every month, practically, I learn of a new filmmaker that has the potential to change my perspective on the world. And I think the thing I love about movies so much is that they, both exist in reality and create their own reality at the same time. And I don't think any other art form really does that. Uh, you could argue video games maybe do that, but I'm not so sure that video games have yet um, established themselves as a, as a narrative art form in the way that maybe movies have. So I'm just always transfixed by film. Um, but I will say, I mean, journalism, literature, I'm obviously an English teacher, so I wouldn't be doing this if I also wasn't obsessed by literature as well. And these are all forms of media. If you think about what media is, like what the, the term itself is, is really stemming from, it's, it's between, standing between. If you're mediating, you're standing in between. And I, I, I like to think about um, media as the, the lens through which we see reality. Uh, there's, there's truth and then there's perception, going back to what I was saying earlier. And media is the thing that stands between where we are and the truth outside of ourselves. Um, so understanding that media always essentially come with a perspective is essential for understanding the, the complexity of the world. And so going back to NMC, and by the way, like NMC is still in its infancy. Like we're still figuring out the potential of the program. We're still figuring out what, what is possible and we're still figuring out essentially how to construct knowledge through the, through the model. But essentially, the way that I like to think about it is um, actually going back all the way, all the way thousands of years ago to Plato's cave. And Plato's cave is this allegory about how we understand truth. Uh, it's about these prisoners who are trapped in a cave. They can't move their, their heads. Um, and so all they can do is just look in front of them. And what's in front of them is this wall where a group of people are projecting images, projecting shadows. And they've been there since birth. So they only see this image in front of them that, that is shown to them. So they see these shadows as truth, when in fact, they're manipulations. And when one prisoner leaves the cave and realizes that, oh, wow, those, that's a manipulation, that's not real, um, it completely blows his mind. And um, 
I see NMC as fundamentally um, resting on that premise that understanding that those shadows on the wall are just shadows and are not truth is essential for not understanding truth, because I don't know if truth actually exists, but understanding the complexity of truth. And the the shadows on the wall for us are the media. So movies, uh, books, social media, photography, journalism, um, podcasting. Uh, These are the things that stand between who we are and the, the truth outside of ourselves. So that's why I say it's a complicated question because I love reading. I love reading books. I love reading literature. I love watching movies. I love listening to music. Um, I'm obsessed with art in all of its forms. Um, art and media intersect in that they present an image of the truth to, to us and what we do with it determines how we act as citizens, how we act as friends, as husbands, wives, neighbors, students, teachers. Um, so in, in short, you can edit all this out, by the way. Um, in short, I actually think that um, understanding media is essential to understanding the world and understanding ourselves in a way that allows us to be our best selves and allows our society to potentially be the best society that it can be. So this is all very idealistic. Um, and that's why I say we're still in our infancy because what I'm talking about now is philosophical. It's theoretical. It's not 100% practical, but I believe in it. And um, we're really just beginning to figure out how to incorporate those ideas into a project-based learning setting, into a setting where all the kids that are there can learn no matter what kind of you know, learning differences they have, no matter what their background is. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm excited to do it. Well said. Like, I can't even stress how I agree. I agree. You know, um, to your point of media as a whole, uh, especially the NMC program being its infancy, a lot of people overlook how media as a whole has shifted so much in these recent years. You touched on podcasts, and in the grand scheme of things, they are very new, a very new art form and uh, type of media. I think the first podcast uh, coined was in 2004 Mm -hmm. itunes introduced the podcast apple introduced podcast itunes early 2000 as well but podcasts alone in that amount of time have progressed and changed so much it's it's really interesting and fascinating to see how they've changed thus far and how they'll continue to change and grow as well as the new media program absolutely so podcasting um so you said 2004, so that means that podcasting as an art form, um, and I'm going to call it an art form. You can call it a media form, art form, whatever, however you f- like feel is most accurate. Um, it's, it's still new, 17 years of podcasting. And let's contextualize this. Um, you know, I was talking about earlier, I was talking about movies and how much I love movies. So, you know, the first movie that was shown to the public was shown in 1895. Um, I would say that the first so-called masterpiece of cinema probably wasn't created until sometime in the 1920s. So if you think about it, it took movies about 30 years to move from its infancy form to its kind of mature form. And don't ask me what movie I, I would associate as like the first masterpiece of, of cinema. There's, there's probably a dozen 
Um, but I will say that it was the 1920s where movies really came into their own as, as an art form where se serious intellectuals looked at movies and said, oh, there's something going on here. So to understand that podcasting in 17 years has progressed in such a way, it kind of shows the acceleration of, of the way that art and media evolve today. But I will say that that's a good promise that 17 years is nothing like there's there's dozens of year, of decades left for for discovery of this form. But we also should appreciate the way that, you know, podcasting has contributed to our society in those in those 17 years. Um, you know, we could all go around and list our favorite podcasts. And I can tell you, I guarantee that in talking about them, each of those podcasts has shaped your vision of the world in certain ways. Um, you know, the big, the big one would be Serial that came out, I don't even remember, 2012 or something like that. And that was basically just a glorified true crime story with no resolution. But it hooked people in because it was a new, very intimate way of telling a story. And ever since then, interview podcasts have proliferated, storytelling podcasts have proliferated, fiction story, storytelling podcasts have proliferated. Um, I mean, I, I will watch an HBO show and the next day go on a run and listen to a podcast about that HBO show. Um, it's, this, it's this new infrastructure about, or a new infrastructure that is, is self-gratifying and kind of circular. Um, so there's always new content that you can explore about the content that you're already interested in. So um, viva la podcast. I mean, like, let's keep this going. And, and like you said, with the inf infancy, going back to it, that's why I love the NMC program so much because I've seen some of my peers who've never recorded a video, made a YouTube video, whatever, go from not knowing what voice memos is on their oh, phone. Oh, we love, me and Justin love to joke, me and Justin love to joke about that one. Yeah, that's, that's a classic. But we've seen them learn how to shoot documentaries, produce quality podcasts yeah. with iMovies in their phone. And, and that also goes to, uh, this might turn into a tangent, but I was thinking about it and talking to my brothers the other day, and we were talking about how... Are they older or younger? They're younger, yeah. so... Yeah, it, it was still a good conversation, though. <laughs> but um, we were talking about... Let me see what I could say. But I said, I guess the principle of what I was saying is with media and telling these stories, you can do a lot more with a lot less. Because back in the day, what, 10, 15 years ago, it would take a lot... You, you can't really... Like, you need a film crew, you need a tripod, camera, microphone, all these things. And you can really do pretty much everything that they could do, a kid could do with their iPhone and iMovie, which are pretty accessible, at least here and in today's culture. And that's why I love the NMC program and why I love doing what I do, because everyone can tell stories. And I think everyone should, because everyone has their own story to tell. Absolutely. And I want to jump in on that by saying that when I was talking about Plato, I, I feel like it, it kind of veered to the philosophical and the theoretical and not necessarily the practical. But I think one of the most important things that we can realize about 2021, or what, what, however you want to describe this era, is that the, the amount of ways that we have to tell stories is so vast right now. It is, I'm not saying that we're living in a utopia because our world is so messed up in so many ways, but if you are interested in the business of storytelling, this is to some extent a golden age. The stories that you can see on television right now are sophisticated, they're diverse, 
Um, they're always thoughtful in conversation with each other. Um, and the two, and, and, you know, that goes equally for the movies that you get a chance to see once the movie theaters reopen. Um, and similarly, if you're interested in telling stories, the ways that you can tell stories right now, um, it, it, no matter what your skill set is, no matter what your inclination is, you can find a way to tell a story in a way that matters. Like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit of a Luddite and say that, um, you guys know what that means? Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm going to be a little bit of a Luddite and say that social media, I still am searching for, <laughs> I'm still searching for a defense of a lot of what happens on social media. But I will say that it's not an accident that they're called stories, you know, in Instagram story. And what that means is that there are thousands, millions of storytellers out there right now telling stories today. And when I went to high school in the 90s, if you wanted to be a storyteller, your, your options were pretty limited. You could take a pencil out, write it down on paper. You could take your computer out, which actually would have required a, a lot of strength because computers were very heavy then. Um, and, and you could type your story. Um, you could re record your story on a tape. But then what do you do with the tape? You know, you can't really do anything with it. Today, as you said, you have voice memos. You could record something on your voice memo. You could put it up on YouTube. And within, if, you know, if your networking is good, within 24 hours, a thousand people could hear your story. That is powerful. That is empowering. And to some extent, that accessibility of storytelling is what NMC is all about. And what I hope at its best it allows students to do is to tell stories in a way that feels authentic, in a medium that feels true. And I, I know this word isn't the most politically correct word, but that feels native to them. As in, um, you know, I'm not asking you to write a sonnet, although I might one day ask you to write a sonnet. Who knows? Sonnets are pretty awesome. But... Uh, I'm going to tell you, take out your, vo your voice memos, create a story, put it up on YouTube, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it, that is a technology form that you guys are comfortable with, and that is very powerful. And like I said, I'm a Luddite. I, I'm still searching for the justification for a lot of what goes on on social media. But at the same time, I know it's there. I'm searching for it. I haven't found it. I know it's there. Um, and so telling stories in a way that feels immediate, that feels authentic, that feels um, true to you guys and your generation. I think, uh, again, that's the essence of what we're trying to go for in NMC. And by the way, NMC is not alone. Like, I think a lot of teachers are trying to do this, no matter if they're in NMC or not. And, and um, one of the things that is, is really essential and important for me to say is that you guys go to school in a, in a school community where you are surrounded by teachers who are driven to innovate and and also driven to connect. So I think those are the two best things that a teacher can do, can be innovative and can connect with, with human beings as human beings, as you were saying earlier, Brendan. And again, it's not just NMC. There's so many teachers in this building that are open to these new storytelling possibilities. And I think that that's super exciting. Yeah, that's one thing that uh, I've actually seen as well. I know Aiden was talking to us about it. He did a podcast in one of his classes. I know other teachers have done other, you know, media initiatives. And as you were saying that, one of the things I was, you know, really thinking is 
is this kind of media enterprise or this way of learning in specifically like English classes, is that the future? I, I think it's a future. And I, I will say this because I lack a lot of skills that my colleagues have um, that prevent me from, from um, designing curriculum that feels very natural to them. Uh, and, and so there are certain skill sets that I definitely, definitely lack um, as, a, as an English teacher. Um, so I don't want to go off and say, like, the skills that I have are, like, the future. Um, because I know that um, I just happen to work with such incredibly talented and creative and innovative teachers that maybe aren't media-focused. Like, there is a number of younger, younger English teachers that are... Um, committed to poetry, for example. Now, there's no other media form older than poetry. And so you might say, well, you know, we're living in a media age, we're living in an electronic age, what rele relevance does poetry have? Well, um, hate to be a, a cliche, but you only have to look at the inauguration ceremony with Amanda Gorman to see that poetry is incredibly current. I know less about poetry than most of my colleagues do. And so um, I think that that those colleagues are brilliant in the way that they are creating a, a poetry curriculum for the 21st century, for 2021 and beyond. Um, there are a lot of my colleagues that are super focused on, um, as, we, as most of us here at Newton South are, on anti-racism and the way that um, our, our systems uh, privilege certain groups and disadvantage others. And that's an important way of reimagining and rethinking what goes on in the classroom. And I'm super committed to that, uh, that process as well. Um, so basically, I, I don't want to say yes, like a media focus or a project-based focus of English classes is the future. It's my future because I, 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 this is my stock and trade. It's where my skill sets lie. Um, so I, I will just say that the future of education rests in the hands of the most creative and the most human teachers. And we just happen to have an incredible cohort of teachers at this school, probably the strongest cohort of teachers that's ever been at the school since I've been here, um, who are envisioning the future in ways that are both universal and specific to their talents. I mean, just in terms of inspiring, being inspiring as a teacher, being around Justin and Brendan so much, I can definitely see the effect that new media has had on them. They're two of like, I learn stuff from them every single day in terms of media, like, and it's, I, I don't even really know where I'm going with this, but I, it just, when you say media, like, is a, a lot of the future and stuff like that, like, in my other classes, people are impressed that I can make a podcast, right. and it's like, it's so easy. It is. It's easy. It's like, we shouldn't say that though publicly. Like we should try to tell everybody it's super hard and it requires a lot of technical knowledge, but it really doesn't. Good thing nobody's listening right now, right? Yeah, I didn't have a, yeah perfect. Exactly. <laughs> and like, like you said, it might sound a little cliche, but a few years ago, it wasn't even seen as a possibility to be the future. Right. And Shout out my brothers, Jared and Julian. They listen to every episode. They, like, 
they aspire to be YouTubers and filmmakers as well as I do. Like, this is why we had the conversation, because they were out there shooting <laughs> videos with their iPod and then editing it in iMovie. And I was giving them tips and stuff, and it's, it's, it's like just... An iPod? Like an, an iPod, old iPod? An iPod Touch. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's so funny how there's like, you know, even an iPod Touch is like a relic of the past, you yeah. know? I was trying to find um, my daughter um, bothered me for a, a brief moment about getting her a video camera. So I was like, oh, why don't I get, I don't want to get her a nice camera. She'll maybe break it. But like, I remember these flip cameras that were around probably when you guys were like eight or nine years old. And I went on eBay to, to, to try to find like an old one. You could get them for like $25. Um, but like, it's ancient technology. But the, I remember they were current less than 10 years ago. Anyway, tangent over. So you're saying your brothers are filmmakers, yeah, filmmakers in their own respective uh, rights. But yeah, it's it's just I love to see them grow, and I like to like to help them and teach them what I can. And even in these past couple of years of NMC, going into it, thankful to Brendan because he encouraged me. I was to gonna mention, I, I was gonna make sure this came up at some point. Yeah, because, <laughs> Justin okay. didn't take NMC, and I'm let's not even sure yeah, that happened. Let's make that clear. At first, last year, sophomore year, I wasn't signed up for NMC, but I talked to my guidance counselor, showed him Mr. Rubin. We got in the works, got in the conversation, and I was in his class. Oh my gosh. Going into it, I was like, oh, I think I'm pretty immersed in the culture of producing and producing media, making videos and such. But the amount of skills that I've acquired in these last two years is astonishing to me. Specifically with audio, auditory, uh, you know, journeys, podcasts and such. I've learned so much, and I really thank you, Mr. Mr. Rinaldi, Ms. Bement, Mr. Lee, everybody. Like, yeah. I love the program. I, I, I just, I, I will say that um, one thing that I do love about teaching in the program is that it welcomes personal initiative in a way that um, not all classes necessarily do. Um, you were going to make movies and podcasts no matter what. But you were given through the opportunity to work with Mr. Rinaldi and Mr. Lee and Ms. Bement and with me, uh, you were given the opportunity to, to exercise your skills and get better and get your early rough work out of the way and learn that you, you know, learn how to grow through making mistakes, through, okay, that didn't sound so good, so maybe we should move the microphone here this way, or maybe um, we should stabilize the camera because this shaky shot doesn't look so good. So, you know, you took that opportunity. I, I, I don't want to um, downplay the role that NMC had, but I also want to say that you took the opportunity that was given to you, and, and that is what allowed you to grow and to develop. And um, you're not alone. A lot of your, your peers also took that opportunity. Um, and I think that that's the most inspiring thing. I mean, you guys may or may not know this, but when we get together as an NMC like teaching team, often we look at student work and we're, um, we're always amazed. And sometimes we're like, we didn't do anything. They just did it. They just went off and did it. And that's, like, that's such a great feeling as a teacher. Not that I don't want to be involved in the process, but... To, to set something up, to give expectations, to try to clearly establish a goal and then let you run wild and do your thing, there's nothing like that thrill of watching um, the final work that you guys create. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see the final documentary. <laughs> you, uh, you touched on this a little bit, but one thing I'd say about uh, NMC, at least from my experience, is you do so much learning 
but you don't realize it. You know, just the little things that you're doing when you're, you're talking about it, changing a couple things up when you're doing some media work or, you know, even in the writing things you're doing, you're doing so much stuff that you don't realize at the time that it's really going to help you. And then you, oh, I, I have another assignment and it was super beneficial. Yeah. One thing Mr. Rinaldi would like talk about last year is like just in time learning. I was like, I don't know what this is. And it was like, we, we did a bunch of like weird assignments like that. I was like, there's no way. It's like, oh, this is kind of like a waste of my time. And then I didn't realize how beneficial and how like good those assignments were until I needed them again, until I needed those skills. My favorite assignment ever in NMC, we were learning about, I believe, the Egyptian Revolution. And it was like, we were learning about maybe an older revolution or something like that. And it was like, make a tweet about what they would say now. And that was just the coolest thing I'd ever done because it's, I've talked about this a lot, but it's just like analyzing media in that new way. And it's just... Exactly. And I think that one of, we need your help actually in this regard, because I think that um, that assignment, that was from Mr. Lee, right? Or was that Mr. Rinaldi? Okay. So that assignment is a perfect synthesis of um, uh, media analysis and traditional content. So you're studying the Egyptian revolution. That's something that is a historical event. You're going to study that in history class, but you're going to be taking a media analytical lens to understand it better. Um, We... We need more of those activities. We need more ways to incorporate that. What that's it's typically called like media literacy um, into the into the program. We're we're like I said, it's still in infancy, and that's definitely one of the ways in which we still need to grow. Um, so maybe we'll establish some sort of think tank later this summer or something like that, and we'll get your opinion about it because that tweet idea is brilliant. It brings you closer to the content through, like I said, a, a, a form of expression that's, that's native, although I don't know, you guys don't. Oh, that's, it's an interesting topic because I love Twitter. I'm a, I, I'm a huge Twitter guy. Yeah. I wish everybody used Twitter, but nobody, it's like sad, honestly, because Twitter, at least like for sports and stuff like that, and just a lot of people talking on Twitter, I think it's super fascinating. People, student, kids our age, like. Yeah, I've noticed that too. And I don't, I don't think you guys use Facebook either, right? Yeah, unless it's like by accident. But the thing is, the thing is this: that once you, I don't know how it is on college campuses, but once you leave high school, I think Twitter is the primary means of projecting ideas to the public. This is not necessarily, you know, you have a closed circuit of followers like on Snapchat or Instagram. Um, Twitter can go out to anyone; it can get retweeted. So the whole world could potentially see it. And so Twitter's, I, I find Twitter to be a, just a central hub to figure out what people are thinking. And so even though you guys may not use Twitter every day to, in, to encounter Twitter or to, um, let's say, engage with Twitter as a format, I think is, is really important in terms of understanding like how you communicate with people and how you're going to be communicating with, with people. Um, this has all sorts of, uh, long-standing and I think important effects on uh, on learning and on essentially where you go in your career. This is a silly way to put it, but um, you need to know how to communicate on Twitter because you don't want a bad tweet to come back and and haunt you through your life. And um, talk about just-in-time learning, like you make a bad tweet in your assignment from Mr. Rinaldi. He's like, "Yeah, you're canceled forever, buddy. Um, sorry." And then you learn it just in time to make that or to not make that mistake in real life. Um, so anyway, uh, 
that that kind of like media literacy activity I think is both fun and important um, and we need more of them. Yeah, I mean, there's no, besides Reddit, maybe Kick, I don't know who uses Tumblr, but there's no real social media where you can have conversations like you can on Twitter. You can add someone like, and even getting your work out there. A long time ago, I tweeted some of my photos out there just for kicks um, of a couple of figures that I have of an anime, Hunter Hunter. Mm-hmm. And the official like Hunter Hunter Twitter page retweeted and I got so many people like these are this is these are sick this and it's just it's so cool to see how and you you have a, a substantial YouTube following as well right because yeah. I, I think I think YouTube is one of those areas that is underexploited as a, both as a as a means of expression and as a subject of study um, I'm not so sure that NMC is the is the place to do that study but um, you know I'm sure Mr Rinaldi talked about uh, YouTube algorithms, because we talk, we talk a lot about, we go on a lot of hikes and we talk a lot about, about, about these subjects, about YouTube, about Twitter, about Facebook, about how these platforms distort the truth, project the truth, etc. We have awesome hike conversations, by the way. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking about YouTube. How did you get so many YouTube followers? I, that's a funny story. So, um... I started out just like my brothers making videos on my old iPod Touch, uploading them. I think my first video ever was a Roblox video, a video game. Posted that. And even before that, I'd always loved YouTube as a platform just because of how much the platform has to offer. There's some like five hours of content being uploaded to the, that's maybe an understatement, like every second or minute. It's, It's ridiculous. And you could find pretty much whatever you want on YouTube. And I've learned so much throughout that throughout my I think I've done I've been on YouTube for four or five years maybe and though my upload schedule may not be as consistent as I want it to be I've experienced experimented with so many different types of videos played around with different and I've learned a lot about the algorithm and I think through trial and error is how I've garnered the amount of followers and a following that I right. have at this point so how many followers do you have like just give me the numbers and then I, and I, I have more I'm curious about so right now on YouTube, I think I have 1,700 subscribers. Yeah, I just checked. Yeah. It's 1,700? Yeah, it's, it's 1.7. That's amazing. So that means that you can post a video, either a class project or any other artistic endeavor that you, that you spend time producing. And immediately, 1,700 people, they may not watch it, but they're at least going to be aware that it exists. That is power. That is power. Best feeling. Is it? Yeah. I would feel like that's there's a lot of responsibility in there, right? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, but, without going into the into the scandals of various YouTubers who misuse that power, you guys could educate me. You guys could run the class on that. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll have a guest lecture next year. I'm saying. That's right. You guys could come back, talk about the 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 Logan Pauls of the world, and <laughs> good fight coming up this weekend. What's the guy who just got canceled? Um, uh, you can name like a lot of people that just got canceled. Uh, David Dobrik? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of people, people have been shouting him out. And like when I talk about this stuff for years, like he's been popular for years. We did do that assignment. That's though. right. We did an assignment where you were like, Teenage Mutant YouTube. I forgot about that. See, that's one of the things I didn't even remember. And then it's like, that came back at home. There it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, getting back to like 
I don't necessarily want to make this a, a Twitter, YouTube, you know, platform conversation. But I will say that, um, again, like, it's all about you, you guys are going to amass followers. Like, you probably have TikTok followers. I had a student a few years ago who had 100,000 views of a video of his on TikTok. That power is unimaginable for somebody like me who grew up, again, in the 90s where you were lucky to be able to get like a college radio show with at four o'clock in the morning when you'd have, you know, truckers and, you know, the people opening up Dunkin' Donuts listening to your radio show. Um, that it's, it's amazing. And that's both, sorry to sound super cliche about this, but like you, you have a lot of responsibility when you do have that many listeners. You have like, that's the Spider-Man thing, you know, great power, great responsibility. Like you guys have access to so many eyes and ears. You can shape opinions. You can become part of a larger conversation. Um, you guys have the power to shape it. You guys have the power to shape what people talk about. And I think that's a pretty grave responsibility. Um, it's awesome, but it's, it's awesome in both senses of the word. Awesome as in great and awesome as in huge, you know, inspiring awe. I am in awe of the power you guys possess. We appreciate that. Um, going along with your point about TikTok and social, those sort of social media, Instagram, Snapchat, what's interesting about TikTok, and Brendan and I have had this conversation before, is really anybody can go viral because of the way the algorithm and the for you page works. Uh, it's a pretty, uh, it's very interesting, but anybody can, if you make the for you page, that's so many people that you're engaging with and can reach out to, and it's it's really, like you said, it's empowering, you know? So yeah. many, the discovery and engagement that you can amass just by posting one video. Right. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with people monetizing their content on, on social media. That's kind of, that's part of the game. But as somebody who hopefully can inspire, you know, socially positive behavior, I, I would hope that there's part of, you guys as creators, as content creators, who um, there's part of you guys that really want to use those platforms to promote ideas that will help people, you know, that will empower people. Um, and I think that's ultimately, uh, one thing that I just, I, I find so amazing about you guys and, and, and essentially the generation that has grown up with social media is that um, so many of you guys are committed to social justice causes and um, while also having fun on, on those platforms. And I just, uh, I, I'm going to try as best I can to convince you to use that power responsibly to, to, to engage with the world in meaningful, thoughtful, critical ways. Um, you know, I like to say that you are either um, a passive consumer of media or you're an active producer of media. Passive consumer, I think you're, you're both consuming and you are being consumed. And that is a real danger of social media where you, your agency, your personality, it gets consumed by that, by that mechanism, by that platform. Um, and, I, you know, it's a very idealistic part of, of the vision of NMC, but like to produce agency in you guys, to give you the agency to, to make change, to call out 
uh, problems in the world to work towards making the world better in whatever way that you see uh, fit to do. Um, and and I, I do think that that's that power that, that attends media, which is that you have a voice, you have a platform. It's literally called a platform. So stand up on that platform and make some good change. Um, because if you don't, then you will be consumed. And that's, that sounds very apocalyptic, but part of me kind of, part of me veers towards the apocalyptic, especially in 2021. Yeah. I know that sounds very preachy, but you know, I, I, I can't, I can't help but believe as a teacher of young people that you guys are capable of amazing things and capable of amazing things through media arts and connect, connecting through media. Um, I, again, going back to that notion that you guys have grave responsibility and um, are you going to live up to that responsibility or are you going to you know, live down to it? Um, I know you guys are. You, you guys are going to go way up, but um, hopefully you can bring people with you. That reminds me, Aiden, you're one of the first thought of these two. I love hanging around these two because if there's a chance and opportunity, they're going to take it and they're going to make the most out of it, which is shout out Brendan, shout out Aiden, my co-host, host as well. Um, but Aiden, like you said, Mr. Weintraub, you will get consumed in these platforms. They are incredibly addicting, and they can be. Aiden, you deleted TikTok, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you can obviously we can cut this out, but do you, do you want to elaborate a little bit on why? What was your decision? What influenced you to delete the platform? Because I know many of my peers who to this day spend countless hours on the app nonstop, and not to say I feel bad for them, but you know, there's, it comes to a point where you got to realize that's a lot of time being spent every day. And it could, you could, you know? Yeah. I mean, I go through stints where I kind of delete all my social media, to be honest. It's especially like in times like this where I'm really busy and I have a lot going on. Um, I just kind of find myself being really discontent with like my productivity and things of that nature. Um, Mr. Weintraub mentioned earlier about how he's kind of still looking for how like things like TikTok and Instagram. Instagram, forgive me if I'm wrong, you said like how they positively impact you or yeah, you said something like that. Um, and I kind of just feel like I'm a mindless consumer and yeah, not to get all like deep, but like I just am like looking at pictures of people who I don't really know that well or like what whatnot and like why am I doing this when I have big projects coming up, the ACT coming up, I could be like making podcasts, like working out, like there's so much more to life than like sitting on your bed and scrolling through social media and so i just think there's a really important balance and a fine line that you have to walk between like mindless consumer, yeah I yeah i think that that's a better dichotomy than the way that i phrased it like being a consumer is is okay like we're, we're all consumers of, of something you know we eat food we're consumers um being a mindless consumer that is something you want to try to avoid um but don't you know, I don't want you guys, I don't want anybody, you especially, to think that for like I, for example, am immune from that. Like there are many, many, many nights where I find myself scrolling through Instagram for no reason. And it and, and it's I think that that's you use the word addictive, right? That's what it's all about, right? It's about that feeling of being compelled to scroll again. And it's so easy. You know, it's just one little quick movement with your thumb, all right? It's so easy to do. And I'm just fundamentally distrustful of anything that's easy. And I think we all should be. Um, so if it takes deleting TikTok 
as a, as a way of challenging yourself or opening yourself up for a challenge, even if that challenge is not looking at your phone for an hour. Um, that's worthwhile. I've never gone so far as, you know, deleting them, but one thing I have done, and I know you've gone on a lot of hikes and stuff like that, is I've, um, I've done a couple like camping trips. I did a bike trip across Europe and, you know, it's, it's a month of time where you're without your phone and those, I guess, you know, six weeks combined where I've, I've been on those trips have been, you know, the best times of my, my life because you're forming connections without any distraction, without any barrier or any kind of just like awkward social media stuff to get in the way. You really form those connections and you're there with those 12 other people to become friends and have a really good time. And I think, I don't do this, but you know, it's, it's impossible to do that in a setting when you're not you know, far away from everybody else. When you're in this world, you know, with all the media, we talked about how, you know, the media has so many good sides, which is incredible. You know, we've seen that new media, we've seen that other times, but we also can see that the breaks and the fostering real human connections are really important. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to just reiterate that. I've been lucky enough to go to a really awesome sleepaway camp for the last like seven or eight years, and I go for a month at a time, and every almost every year I'm in a cabin with, different kids and it's just amazing to me how the bonds and connections that I make with these kids who I live with for literally one month of a year and I've compared to kids who I've known since I was in kindergarten and it's I'm with like to be brutally honest I'm way closer with kids I've lived with for a month and it's I think the phone and like just every like I think the phone honestly does because you're not present you know that's something my mom always says and I don't want to just be my mom here but like (laughs) I'm sure as a parent that, well, I mean, it doesn't seem like... Yeah, I mean, um, so first of all, I think that you're absolutely right, Brendan, that, that um, getting away from your phone is a way to, to reintroduce yourself to a kind of authentic experience that is harder to achieve when you have your phone. And again, I don't want to sound self-righteous here. Like, I, I use my phone all the time. And I use my phone, I like to think, for mostly good reasons. Communication, mostly. Organization and logistics. But like I said, I'm often scrolling through social media too. It's just, it's, it's easy. It's there. You need a break from all the, you know, all the noise that's around you. Um, but that authenticity of experience that you get when you're away from your phone, it can't really be replicated. Even if your phone is sitting next to you, um, I think it affects you. And, and the people who make phones and the people who make apps and the people who run social media platforms, they know that. So they're super smart and they've, they've got your number. They've got all of our numbers. Um, and it's amazing actually, Aiden, to hear that there's still a camp out there where you, you don't have phones for, for a month. They take your phone away. You just don't bring them. You don't bring them. There's multiple. Honestly, as a, I think that's one of the best things my parents ever did say goodbye to me for a month without my phone. It's like, especially as I've gotten older and like life's gotten a little more stressful, like it's a really good opportunity to be able to hit, hit a reset button. And I know I'm really privileged to be able to do that, sure. but like just time away from everything, especially the phone. Which camp is it? It's called Beckett. Yeah, I thought so. I actually went to Beckett. You're kidding. Really? Yeah, I went there for six years. You're kidding me. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't that great? Did you... I went I'm went blown away. There are so many Brookline <laughs> and Newton people yeah. there, yeah, so that it, makes it's sense. It's true, it's true. It's definitely a Um... I'm sad. I don't have sons. I have two daughters. I love having two daughters. But the thing I'm sad about is that I'll never be able to send them to Beckett. No, dads, no, kids, no, dads, no, no, exactly. Exactly. I said that to my wife the other day. I'm like, 
you know, I just realized I'm never going to have dad's weekend, which kind of, it's kind of slayed me for a little bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was, I was, um, I guess I, I, I went for six years and, um, that was a real formative experience for me as well. Um, have you gone through like the leadership stuff? Like, did, were you an aide? Were you a CIT? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was, I was supposed to go on reach last year, but it got canceled. Yeah. And so this year, instead of, instead of just skipping a year, they pushed everything back, but they're not having reach. Dude, was there reach yeah. when you were there? My sister um, did it. Yeah. So, but I'm going to be an aide this summer. So yeah, I'm, I'm super psyched about that. Uh, yeah, we will have another podcast to talk about Beckett stories. Cause it's very boring for people who didn't go, but, I'll, but we'll talk, we'll talk later. I'm, I'm so excited to hear that it's still, um, it's, it's, it's still making life hard in the best ways possible, which is there's no electric. There were no, you know, when I went, there was no electricity in the cabins. Are there still no electricity? See, I just, I absolutely love that. It taught me so many important lessons. Like when you, when you can live without electricity for a month and all you have to go on is camaraderie with your cabin mates. Um, I, I think you learn a lot about living without. And again, let's make sure we frame this. It, like this is a, a place you go to live without that you pay a lot of money to go to <laughs> and you have to be economically privileged to attend. Um, so I don't want to have a blind spot there. If you can go and have an authentic experience without electricity, without the internet, without your phone, um, I, I think it does a whole lot to, to your, your imagination. It r makes you realize that there's a whole lot of potential um, that you have as an individual um, that you can define for yourself. And I think that that's really valuable information to have self-knowledge. I, I was going to say the same thing. You learn so much about yourself when you're on those, you know, solo camp. Like, like you were saying, when you were in your camp experience, you just learned so much about like, I guess like what you can become or, or what you really need. Yeah. It, it's so hard because I was thinking about what my usual life is, you know, at my house. And it's almost, it's just like I was saying earlier, it's so difficult to, to separate the two, yeah. which in some ways is, you know, frustrating. And it does kind of walk the, like, the line of privilege of the things you have. Um, and it, sometimes it's frustrating because it's like, I would love to go on those trips often, but it's like, how much can you really do that and still, like, I guess, not really live a normal life, but live a life where you can, you know, do a lot of things you want to do, like have families and, you know, have, you know, a good economic background. And, you know, I don't think that anybody is going to advocate for being, you know, Henry David Thoreau and going to live alone in the woods. He wasn't even really that isolated or alone in the woods. So that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of hype, um, Walden hype. Um, but uh, again, going without is, I think, the best lesson of what you can do when you're not. And um, I, I know I learned that lesson from, from going to camp, for sure. Um, definitely shaped my, my attitude. Um, about so many things and, and mostly about the authenticity factor, like how you live authentically. Um, that's, I think, a major challenge for, for a lot of people. How do, you, how do you live in a way that you can be proud of, um, that you can be in the moment? It almost actually sounds quite Buddhist, like living in the moment, making sure the moment, every moment counts, being present. Um, yeah, and I, I want to say this, this year's obviously been hard for a plethora of reasons, but one thing that's been really hard for me was I've been so reliant on camp every summer since I was a little kid, and it kind of reinstilled like values and like how to live into me. And so going another year without it, I just think that's just that made this year that much worse, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you find ways? Did you compensate in some sort of way? 
Yes, and I mean nothing to the extreme. Right. Like, did you go biking or hiking or running? Yeah. So, I mean, I I tried going without my phone for like a long time over the summer, which went all right, and I stayed with my family again. Lucky that I was able enough to go on vacation and like, like up in like Wellfleet, which is like far away part of the Cape. So it kind of felt that away type of vibe, but it's really unreplicable. Like you can't really say. Uh, yeah, it, it does in that, um, I think like finding a bond with people matters a lot. Um, uh, tradition, traditions matter a lot for me. It, it, that's one of the things that made this year really challenging because I have certain traditions in class that I rely on year after year that weren't possible because of the um, because of the pandemic, and um, I think that that's that's the thing that really that really sticks with me. That um, I mean, some traditions are are straight up bad traditions, and and we need to overturn them, and that's what good social change is all about. But then there are, are traditions that are healthy that that bring people together, that make people forge together through a shared common identity. And, um, and that's definitely something that I remember from Beckett specifically, which was that, that you had those slogans on the wall and you sang the songs. And, there, and that's, that stuck with me for sure. It shaped the way that I teach for sure. I hope everybody who is listening can, can have that kind of experience, whether it's with camp or whether it's with church or uh, something like that. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, you mentioned the point of traditions and bad traditions and sort of like the regulation, so to speak. And what I thought of when you said that is, shout out to my mom and my dad, but my family can't watch television on the weekdays. And that was because of me when I was younger. I think it was until maybe kindergarten or first grade, that wasn't a rule. But then I made it a rule. My poor younger brothers have to suffer through that. And now my brothers, obviously, it's not even a factor in, in their lives. And it's tricky because now my younger, Jared's going into middle school and he's getting a phone. And he has a, well, he has a phone now. And it's been, now it's like a whole new world for him because I can communicate with all his friends through like Google Hangouts and Discord. And it's been, it's, it's, it's kind of shaken, shook my family in the sense that now Jared has a way, an outlet to communicate with his friends, but I'm trying to instill a sense of discipline in him to the point where he doesn't spend all his time with his friends. So like you said, the regulation in there is super important and I commend all three of you for being able to do so on your own and, and really really taking a step back away from the phone usage because it can be addicting. It really can and it's scary. It is. It's really scary. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, again, I'm a 40-year-old person talking about um, social media and phone usage because it, so it, it's obviously gonna, I'm coming from this from a very specific perspective. But um, it goes back to that notion about mindless consumption, you know? And just so you know, that, there, that fear has always attended new technologies. So when TV came out, everybody was afraid of all the mindless consumption that people were doing of television. So this is not new. Um, but I do think that the personalized nature of, of social media and, and, and phones in particular um, make it that much more addictive and make it that much harder to not be mindlessly consuming what comes that what comes there. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I will say that the one thing that I do think that, or one of the things that I, I think is, is much harder to do as a teacher with phones and social media is teach reading. And 
you know, again, I'm an English teacher, so I, I come to this job through my first love, which is literature, which is reading. And I find that if I were a kid, if I were a 13-year-old and I had a phone that had Instagram on it or Snapchat or TikTok or YouTube even, I just don't know how you get into reading when you have those things at your fingertips. Um, and I believe that reading is a fundamentally important act. Like you cannot be a critical thinker if you don't read. I don't know the science behind it, but I just know it. It's like, I know that that's true. Um, and I do worry that fewer kids are actively reading. Maybe I'm wrong. Please tell me I'm wrong. But that's my fear that fewer kids are actively reading because you can't, there's no, you, there's no touchscreen function on, a, on an actual book. You know, you can't swipe a book. Um, and so I do get kind of worried about that because, again, I, I treasure the act of reading. Um, even despite my media fascination, like, I, I still am an avid reader and I treasure, like, if you give me three hours by myself, I'm, I'm reading. Like, that's what I'm doing. I'm reading. Um, because... I, I, it's, it's satisfying in a way going back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like, it's harder. It's, it's, it, there's a lot of resistance there. Um, it's a challenge and, uh, you have to be active, but what, I mean, do, do you guys, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? So the thing that I really struggle with is it's, it's kind of a complex thing because it's so easy, especially now for books that were like in school. I find it really hard. You know, when I get assigned a book for school to sit down and read it, once I get into it, like just anything really, once you get into the book, it's a lot easier. But like sitting down and, and reading, I guess, like a traditional like novel you'd get assigned in school, it is difficult. What I do a lot, because this could be, I think each kind of student has a different perspective on it, but it is easy, you know, because there's things you can look up, you know, to see the, you know, answers and stuff like that. The thing that I try to read a lot is I read a lot of articles um, because that's something I'm really personally interested in because I know it's going to take, you know, five minutes and it's just that. And it, it makes me think at least, you know, specifically about that thing and about that moment. And when I think you get assigned a book, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen. So I'd say for me, I read a lot of, you know, articles, but not so much books. What do you guys feel about that? It's funny you say that because whenever my parents threaten my brothers with a punishment like no electronics or something on the weekends they'll always say well what do we do now and then my mom will always say go read and then their first instinct will be like nobody does that anymore which is which to your point it's it's the culture is definitely shifting like you said going with uh being assigned the novel in class typically it, it i definitely noticed it's been harder to start the novel besides everything i never told you oh good i'm glad i'm glad yeah, I know. You, you identified, like, right away that that book was for you. I remember talking to you about that. Yeah. But I've been trying to – now this, I, you know, this may be controversial, but I like manga anime. I like reading manga. Mm -hmm. And so I've been trying to put my brothers onto some manga just to – because you read. It's, it's, some people compare it to a comic book. It's right. the same sort of thing. And, and you're reading, and it, it stimulates your brain. And it's, it, like you said, it's more challenging, and it, it's harder than just – the mindless consume, consumption of TikTok For sure. and YouTube. I actually don't know anything about manga. Um, it's it's a total blind spot in my expertise, in my area, like in my, let's say, like in my range of knowledge. I just, it's a blind spot. I, I do know the works of, you know, Studio Ghibli, like um, Hayao Miyazaki, the film director. 
but that, those are I, I filter that through the lens of cinema and not comic books, which is the way that most manga is consumed, right? For me, for reading, reading was, it was very present in my life as a kid. And then I kind of got introduced to the phone and video games and it went away for a while. And then as I've grown and I've matured and I've realized like, oh yeah, reading makes you smart and being smart is actually what actually is cool. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, <laughs> I'm sorry to have to put it like this, but I'm going to, which is that if you want to be smart, you have to read. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sure there, I, I believe that there are multiple intelligences. I get it. But like, if you want to be an actively intelligent person attuned to what's going on in the world, you have to be a reader. You have to be. So that's, I'm, 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 I'm totally happy to get hate mail about that and uh, uh, people who reject that notion. But I, I just, I feel like um, active participation in democracy uh, requires the kind of critical thinking that you only really acquire through reading. And that doesn't matter if it's reading great articles by great writers, great novels, um, manga, com even like comic books work too. Uh, graphic novels, like you just, you have to be able to sit sustained, quiet, get the reading done, internalize it, and then think about it. And uh, there's no, I, don't, I, I, I don't think there's any substitute for reading as far as that goes. I don't think my, my colleagues will disagree with me, but maybe the student body collectively will. I think anybody who would disagree with you on that would be wrong. Well, I, I, that's why I said it, but I do also think it's controversial because there's, there are lots of different kinds of intelligences, but I'll be very practical. If you read a lot, you know a lot of words. You just absorb words. It, it, it just happens. Like, you don't need to study vocabulary to know a lot of words. You just need to read a lot. And if you know words, um, now I'm totally being an English teacher right now, but like, if you know a lot of words, you therefore know more ideas. And knowing more ideas allows you to generate more connections between them. And that act of connecting ideas to ideas, that's intelligence. And so much, just like, to offer a perspective of someone who's interested in some reading because of what they've seen in media. Like for me, a movie that I saw recently that I loved was No Country for Old Men, obviously like a classic, and it's based off the book by Cormac McCarthy, right? Mm -hmm. And so after watching that movie, I was inspired to, and now I've been, I've been reading The Road. Uh, yeah, so it's just like reading it's hard for things to come full circle without reading. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. And I, I also, I'm with you. Like I used, I used movies as a jumping off point for books when I was a kid because I, I was movie obsessed from when I was, I don't know, 11 years old. Um, I, you know, it starts with Jaws and that spurt of blood that comes up when the kid gets eaten. And you're like, whoa, movies can do that. And then like you sort of descend into it. You realize that there's artistry there. There's a person behind the camera making decisions. And then that connects you to the world of ideas. And when you watch a great movie and you're like, oh, that came from a great book. Let's see what that, let's see what that's about. I'm so happy to hear that that happened with McCarthy. You should definitely read Blood Meridian, which is, I mean, the word blood is in the title. It is one of the most brutal novels that you will ever read. It is a searing indictment of the American project. And it is so damn violent uh so just prepare yourself but it's also it's richly beautiful 
So once you're done with the road, I really recommend checking out Blood Meridian. It's it's excellent. Hi, it's Brendan. Sorry for the quick interruption. We had to cut this episode a little bit short because school was about to start. We plan on having Mr. Weintraub and hopefully Mr. Rinaldi on an episode in the future. Um, I just say thanks to you guys. Uh, I've I'm I've listened to all your episodes. Um, I'm gonna say this publicly, even though I've said it to you guys already, which is that um, you guys have a really great rapport with each other, and it's very engaging to listen. You have um, a lot to say, and uh, I'm 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 here for it always. So thank you for letting me be a part of this. I can't wait to hear more episodes, and um, I hope you get. Uh, even more engaging uh, conversationalist than than I happen to be today. So uh, here's to Denevacast. <laughs> <laughs>